Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast, which is going out on YouTube. So if you're watching it, obviously you're watching it on YouTube, but it's also going out to listeners on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts or Apple Music Podcasts. God, I sound like a real dad saying that, don't I? Confusing Apple Podcasts with Apple Music Podcasts. They are very different things. Apple Music is a streaming service. Apple Podcasts is a podcast delivery service. Anyway, this podcast is in video format. It's in audio format. And in this episode, once again, I am joined by Sujan Ibayan to discuss four interesting news items that we have discovered in the last what, three to four weeks. Now, my choices are generally more mainstream than Srajan's. And in fact, at the end of this episode, just like the last, Srajan has a bonus spicy item that I think might challenge some viewers and listeners. But we kick off proceedings with an introduction to a new open baffle speaker from Clayton Shaw. If you want to know more about that loudspeaker, there will be links in the description box below. So yeah, let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Blue Sound, makers of the Node X network streamer. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Okay then, Srijan, welcome back for another hour of running through news stories that have grabbed our attention in the past couple of weeks or since we last did a podcast like this. And as always, as you're the guest, you get to tee things up with the first news item. All right. Uh, Do you remember the movie The Shawshank Redemption? I do. You know, it's like I hear from girls that is the the number one favorite movie for for most dudes. When they put it in their dating profile, it's like favorite film, Shawshank Redemption. So Didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a bit of a cliche dude film. And I do know at the at the time of release, it wasn't a big hit. It's only sort of over time that it's it's kind of gained a reputation as being a solid movie. It's okay. For me, it's a six out of ten. It's not amazing, but it's not terrible. It's entertaining, you know? Well, did you know that they have a sequel? No, didn't know that. It's, it's running today on the Darko podcast. <laughs> oh, God, very good. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, it's going to be one of those episodes, isn't it? Dad jokes are plenty. Yeah. So it's the Shawshank Redemption without the shank. All right. So mm-hmm. here goes. So it's 2005. And Stereophile reviews a speaker called the Elan mm-hmm. by a company called Evett and Shaw. And the speaker is called the Elan. It's a $2,000 a pair desktop speaker. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking a time when the majority of desktop speakers are like plastic atrocities. Mm-hmm. So for $2,000, this is like the top premium luxury league. Mm-hmm. And it's a small speaker, very elegantly made. And it has a two and a half centimeter plastic white bander. And then it has two equivalent drivers firing down. Okay, and those come in at about 250 hertz. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to forward two years, and we're going to the Rocky Mountain Audio Fest, where a company called Emerald Physic introduces this $3,500 pair C2. Mm-hmm. And the C2 is an open baffle speaker with a uh, compression tweeter on top mm-hmm. that sits inside a 12-inch waveguide. 
Mm-hmm. And then it crosses over to two 15-inch woofers, all on like one plank that's maybe about this deep, and then the woofers are sticking out a little bit, right? Yeah. Now, this speaker does not have a crossover. Okay. So the way that they did it in those days was they had an outboard DSP crossover by Behringer, and okay. that required biamping. Sounds complicated. So the Emerald Physic open baffled speakers all relied on DSP compensation to work as intended. And the biggest dealer that they have in the United States is a gentleman by the name of Walter Liederman, mm-hmm. who runs Underwood Hi-Fi out of Lahaina in Maui, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And he's so successful. He's heads and shoulders, the most selling dealer in the United States, that he ends up buying the company. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... The gentleman we're talking about today is Mr. Shaw, Mr. Clayton Shaw, Mm. but he sells the company to his best dealer. Now we forward eight years, it's 2015, and Clayton Shaw now returns with spatial audio. Mm -hmm. And spatial audio originally promotes his own DSP room correction software. Yeah, I do remember that. And I, I don't recall what happened. Well, obviously, nothing happened to it, really, of note. Well, uh, yeah, okay, I won't preempt it. <laughs> so I actually don't know either what happened mm. to that portion of the business. All I know is that eventually he comes out with the M3, mm-hmm. which is, again, an open baffled speaker. But this time, it is purely passive. Yes. No more outboard crossover, no more need to buy amp. Everything that the speaker needs to do is sort of built into the crossover, the passive crossover that sits embedded. I believe in those days it was embedded in a little in the plinth behind the speaker, had like a little box that was part of the brace. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier this year, there were reports that due to personal illness, I think resulting from an accident, Mm. Clayton once again sold a company. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after came the news that he was about to launch another new company, mm-hmm. now called Clayton Shaw Audio Labs. Mm-hmm. Now, just a month ago or so, the Capital Audio Fest concluded. And my old contributor, Ken McCullough, who now writes for Stereophile, covered the show and wrote that Clayton, within the three show days, sold 120 pairs of his new speaker. I can believe that, yeah. Called the Caledon. Mm -hmm. And Caledon obviously goes back to the book Dune that then became a major motion picture, part two to to be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. Once again, the Caledon is an open baffle speaker and it's made, the baffle is made out of solid wood. Mm. I have to quickly check up. Yeah, it's maple, walnut, oak or cherry mm-hmm. for now about the dimensions because you may think open baffle has to be big this one is just four centimeters shy of 50 centimeters across and one meter top to bottom mm-hmm. i measure one meter and 86 so for me that speaker hits me right at the belt line it's not a very tall speaker but it combines two 12 inch paper cone pro audio Bamer, well, I would have just said woofers, but actually they are mid-woofers, mm-hmm. 
because they cross over at, let me check this out, one kilohertz on a second order filter to a Dayton Pro 1.125 mil silk dome tweeter. Mm -hmm. So silk dome tweeter on the top, dual 12s below, Mm. All 12 inch woofers run in parallel. So this is mm -hmm. a two way, not a two and a half way or a three way. They add up to the cone surface of a 17 inch single woofer. Mm. But since we're talking about the dipole where the driver moves air front and back, the back radiation is not captured inside the box. This is really like a 24 inch box woofer, what we've got in there. Mm. Now, three. Isoacoustic Gaia footers are included. The bandwidth for the speaker is claimed to be 32 hertz to 20 kilohertz plus minus 2 dB. Mm -hmm. And sensitivity rates are high 93 dB at 4 ohms. Mm. And now here is the redemption part of the Shawshank Redemption <laughs> Part 2, which is the price. Okay. The price is, now this is globally, not just in the US. This is globally mm. shipped flat packed. $3,295, $3,295 the pair. So he's shipping these globally now. Because he's shipping them globally. So this was a, if I may interject here, this Please. was a, a big, um, I guess I would call it an obstacle for me because I, I, I visited Clayton at his spatial audio facility in Utah in 2015. In the middle of winter, it was when I was doing smartphone videos and we did an interview there and he was telling me how well he he's i think he was the guy that explained to me about the figure eight cancellation that can trouble dipole speakers of which open baffles are that type and how he gets around it now by almost i guess not redesigning the driver but compensating for that cancellation in the driver so that he doesn't have to outboard the compensation to dsp and i had a pair of Oh, God, was it the M4 or the M1? I think it might have been the M4, but I could be wrong. It was the most affordable pair. Uh, Clayton sent me a pair to Australia, and I re reviewed them. They were fantastic. They look really good. And back then, he was sort of – I think his mindset was more IKEA-oriented towards not just design but also pricing because I think they were about two grand, 2500 US dollars. Um, and they were just a superb speaker. They were great to look at. And I wanted to get a pair here, but when I started to dig into it, there was this complicated, for me, complicated. It might not have been in reality complicated, but for me it was complicated, complicated situation where there was a, a German distributor whose pricing was way out of whack with the US because he had to obviously ship these big expensive things out of the US. And I think what ended up happening, and I could be wrong, and if I am, please let me know in the comments below, everybody, is that Spatial Europe sort of peeled off and for a while Clayton was sending the drivers to Europe and the cabinets themselves would be made, I think, here in Germany or maybe the Netherlands, I don't know. Well, there, were no, there were no cabinets, right? They're just baffles. Well, sorry, yes, you're right. Cabinets. But yes, you're, you're yes. correct. The wood. Yes. <laughs> the, wood the wood part, right? The plank. Yes, the plank. <laughs> that was all made here and then assembled here and then sold here. And I think that's still ongoing. It just got really confusing, and I preferred to deal with manufacturers. I didn't really want to deal with the German distributor. And so I just dropped the ball. I was like, I can't do this because 
obviously Clayton's not going to send a parent to Germany when he's got a distributor here, but I didn't, no offense to the distributor here. I just didn't want to deal with them. So that was the last I heard of it until, as you mentioned, Clayton became ill. I don't know why it's not my business. Um, and then very recently, cause he's quite, I won't say friends. I don't know why that's the right word, but he, he's, he's appeared a lot on Ron Brené's YouTube channel under new record day. And so Ron has reviewed a bunch of Clayton's open baffle, baffle speakers as spatial. And I think Ron just covered the, the new Clayton Shaw audio lab speaker. What's it called again? Caladan. Caladan. Right. So he's covered that. So I, I am aware of it, but just really through, yeah, by accident, just from sort of just fumbling around on YouTube, really. So um, I think it's going to be his last speaker as well. It's like this is his sort of swan or maybe not. I don't know. Well, okay. So there, for a while, there was a lot of uh, conspiracy theory thinking on audio circle by people that said, okay, so he starts a company, he becomes successful, he sells it, and right after, he opens another company that is in direct competition to the company he just sold, and look, he has done it again. Well, as it turns out, Spatial Audio, just two days ago, mm. put out a short post on Audio Circle saying that they had just received a pallet worth of parts that they've been waiting for, and they were now finally ready to assemble Caledon and ship it to all of the waiting owners. Long story short, Clayton's old company, Spatial Audio, is actually building this speaker. Okay, okay. So there's, no, when, there's, no, there's when, no bad blood or anything like that? No, good. Not, none whatsoever. There was a speaker that Spatial Audio was planning to come out with. Hmm. And when Clayton, who I think the story goes, built this particular speaker for himself, and then realized it was so good that he thought it should go into production. Mm -hmm. And the price point that they agreed upon him selling it was directly competing with the speaker that Spatial Audio was already working on. So that one got scratched. Uh, Clayton, okay. Clayton now sort of owns that lower price point, and Spatial mm -hmm. Audio is going upscale. And now I have to again uh, refer to my notes. They're working with uh, two gentlemen, Lynn Olson and now I can't find it, and somebody else <laughs> on releasing uh, tube electronics. Ah, uh, okay. A tube preamplifier, Don Sachs, Don Sachs and Lynn Olson. Those are the mm -hmm. two gentlemen that are licensing or have arranged to have made by Spatial Audio these electronics to be sold. And they're mm -hmm. going to be not cheap. So it seems that spatial audio is trending to a bit you know, more upscale. Mm. Fully aware that Clayton has this budget or more affordable model out there. And yes, originally the story was that Clayton had like one more design. This was it. Mm. But who knows? Who knows? It's a story now with many twists and turns, right? There's, there's going to be a twist at the end of the sequel, isn't there? And yeah. We don't even know what it is yet. <laughs> well, some creative accountant is going to laugh all the way to the bank and end up in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Don't say that. I don't want to be on the hook for some kind of legal bills myself. I'm sure everything is above board, Sajan. Nothing. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But there was one thing you said before that mm. we actually need to correct because the figure eight is actually not a, um, a detriment 
it's actually an advantage of open baffled speaker if yes if you have particularly smaller rooms yes because the open baffle radiation the so-called figure eight where you have a frontal lobe and you have a rear lobe in the mm -hmm. middle you have the baffle where in phase and out of phase radiation cancels so you basically have no energy going to the side which means that for all intents and purposes your sidewalls which are usually points of early reflections have disappeared Yes, they're very good for that. Yes, sorry. So I, you can put these speakers really close to the sidewall, and mm. you, the sidewall sort of won't make itself known to your ear brain as a source of reflected sound, as it would with a with a box speaker. Now the flip side, obviously, is that because you have base cancellation, because the lower the wavelengths get, the longer they get, they wrap around yeah. on an open baffle, they cancel yeah. out. You're losing what's called room gain. Not all of it but you're losing a lot of it. And if you remember... Ah, okay, when, this is where I've got confused. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So when Kef Audio came out with that subwoofer that you own, yep. what is it called? The uh, KC62. 62. They advertised or promoted a very sort of unrealistic-looking figure of being capable of hitting 14 yeah. dB. Yep. <laughs> well, they didn't specify it what SPL, mm -hmm. but they referred to 15 dB of room gain in the low frequencies. Mm. So if the average room has six surfaces, right? Four mm -hmm. walls, ceiling and floor, and we give each surface three dB gain, mm. three times six is 18. So they, you know, at 15 dB of room gain, if you're just taking out the wall behind you, that's basically what you get from a speaker that behaves omni in the base. Mm. If you have an open baffle, you're losing the side walls. That's already one third mm. less room gain. You have the same cancellation going up towards the ceiling. There's another one-sixth. Hmm. No. So we can see that open baffles probably have about 50% or thereabouts less room gain than conventional box speakers. Mm -hmm. So in order to make up for it, you need big cone surface. Right. And you also can't use a conventional woofer because in a box, when the woofer goes into the box, it's, it compresses the air. The air yes. in the box can't really escape. It acts like a spring and becomes a restorative force for the driver to go back out. Mm. Right? Now you take that box away, and suddenly all that driver sees is it sees our room air. It sees mm -hmm. exactly the same impedance, acoustic impedance, front and back. Mm -hmm. So in order to make up for that loss of restorative force, a, a dipole woofer has a special suspension. The suspension components have to be stiffer. So now we're talking about the surround, and we're talking about what's usually like the rippled uh, corrugated paper on the inside that you can't see. It's called a spider. Mm -hmm. And that's why Clayton has gone to Bamer, which is a Spanish driver company that's popular in the pro audio market. And mm -hmm. that woofer is specifically made for open baffle use. So it sort of accounts for what it's losing. So you've just explained what I tried to explain before in a far more detailed and far more eloquent way than I'd ever did, Sir John. So thank you for that. Because I, I've learned something there, you know, that you've clarified what I kind of thought I knew, but not really, obviously. So oh, That's good then. And there's one more thing, that um, open baffle should have a little bit of room from the front wall, which yeah, is the wall yeah. that we're looking at. Yeah. The reason for that, though, is that if you were to put that speaker right up against the wall, the radiation that comes out from the back reflects off the wall immediately, mm -hmm. right? 
So now that is canceling out or interfering with the front going wave. Mm -hmm. So you're not only losing output to the sides, you're also losing outputs towards the listener. Mm -hmm. So you want to move the speakers away from the front wall so that the phase relationship of the rear wave reflecting off the front wall changes so that it no longer interferes with the front going radiation. So that's why you want a little bit of room and usually they recommend about a meter. 80 mm -hmm. centimeters to a meter and a half, that tends to be sufficient. So open baffles are not entirely happy or not as happy as they could be if you put them flat up against the wall, but they can be right up against the side wall, which you would probably want to tow them in. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to look to make that, yeah. Yeah, so they're sense. now yeah. aiming yeah. aiming at, at your yeah. ears. But it's 32.95. Now I have to, I would have to look up whether that includes shipping. Mm. I'm not sure. But so if we include shipping and VAT and all of that and call it 3,500 delivered, we're looking at a speaker that for all intents and purposes is supposed to be full range and not that hard to drive and should do really well in small to medium-sized rooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting concept. And I think with the right design, they can look absolutely superb in a room. But I do, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to bag on Magnapan, but they do have, I mean, it's not, I know it's not the same driver type or anything like that, but you still, you've still got a dipole design, right? With a Magnapan speaker, right? Yes. But what you don't have with a Magnapan is you don't have the same excursion right. potential that you have with a dynamic driver, which is why some people find that Magnapans are super transparent, but maybe not as dynamic as they would like. And very often in the base, not quite as as hung, unless you go and you get yeah. one of those real big room divider type magnapans. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, mentioned, I mentioned them because of the aesthetics. Because, I, I mean, I love what magnapan do, but the aesthetics side of things, not so much, even though I would really love to get a pair of LRS plus here. I think that might happen, actually. Maybe, fingers crossed, if I can pull it off. But... I like the idea of a flat, a flat speaker in the room. I think it can look really smart, if yeah, if placed nicely. And I think they can look really good. And I think even though they can be taller, because they, there's no depth to them, there's no physical depth really. They don't seem to be as physically imposing as a, you know, a proper box floor stander. Especially at the moment where the trend for box floor standers is narrow front baffle, and then deep, right? Mm -hmm. Which I know the Europeans seem to love it. It's it's certainly very popular here. Um, and I think that can make speakers look really big. And I think the KEF LS60 wireless look because big because of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know where I'm going with this really, but like I just think that the, the open baffle side of things is is not it's not just a sonic thing for me. It's it's an aesthetics thing as well. Right. And I think that's where Clayton really made advances because mm. the early Emerald Physics CS2 was sort of like a Van der Steen type sock affair. Right. So you right. had the open baffle, you had the drivers, but then you had like a grill cloth that sort of was hiding the, the protruding uh, magnets in the back mm. and was also covering up the front two woofers. Mm -hmm. And now he has solid wood and there was originally a photo of a red locket baffle and asked Clayton whether he was still thinking about offering lockers 
for those people that want them. And he said mm. that he had originally used red lacquer on MDF. And he said that didn't sound the same. Oh, okay. And right now, he's, so he has scratched the MDF solution, even though it was exactly the same dimensions, same yep. thickness, yep. everything. And now he's experimenting with lacquering his maple solid wood mm-hmm. to see whether he can get an agreeable finish quality on it. If he does, there will be lockers available, but they will obviously come for a surcharge. They won't yes. be able to sell for the same yeah. as an unfinished wooden plank. Yeah, a lacquered colored pair would be right up my street. Really would. Yeah. Uh, what did I forget? Probably nothing. The only thing that I forgot was that, okay, each speaker weighs 35 pounds. Was uh, so, 18 uh, kilos? Yeah. Kilos? So, yeah. you know, it's reasonably easy to move about. And yeah. if in a particular install, the interior designer just absolutely insisted to park them up against the wall, well, you move them up against the wall. And when you want to listen, you move them out. They're still yep. light enough where that is not an issue whatsoever. Yep. And the last thing we should probably say is that here we have two 12-inch drivers that behave like a 17-inch woofer crossing over at one kilohertz to a one-inch tweeter. Mm-hmm. And where have we seen something kind of sort of similar before? With Zoo. They have a 10.3-inch woofer, mid-woofer, that crosses over to a tweeter at a very, very high 8 or 10 kilohertz. Mm-hmm. And what do we get from that? We get a big driver that is handling mid-range mm-hmm. and going all the way up to the lower treble. And from that, we expect, and usually always get, we get a beefier, meatier vocal band, and we may not get quite the same sort of separation powers and maybe not quite the same sense of sort of snap and, and speed up in the presence region. Mm-hmm. One, two, three kilohertz, maybe slightly below, just because we've got a bigger driver with more cone surface and more moving mass. Mm. So a little bit less resolution, but definitely more sort of chunkiness and what zoo calls shove to sense that music is sort of it's moving air because we've got a 12 inch got two 12 inch mid-rangers rather than the speaker i'm looking at right now has a five and a quarter inch mid-range and this is something else we should mention that because of the acoustic short circuit that the open baffle figure eight creates you can get similar bass in terms of extension from a five and a quarter inch modern woofer in a ported box mm-hmm. that an open baffle needs two 12 inch woofers to do. But it won't sound the same. Will not sound the same. And the open baffle will move a hell of a lot more air. Mm. So when that kick drum hits, you know, I mean, if you look at a at a kick drum, at the bass drum, how big that thing is, mm. it's it's massive. And so when that gets hit and you have a tiny driver trying to reproduce that, it may go low enough, just like my headphones would, mm. but you certainly don't get that sense of push moving yeah. air. Yeah, you, you, yes, I understand what you mean, yeah. Yeah, and that's where I think open baffles really excel because they have to apply that much cone surface, mm. especially if you listen to symphonic classical music where you have like 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80 people in the orchestra. And when 80 people get loud, they get a lot louder than, you know, a string quartet or a jazz trio. Mm. And loudness means moving air in the room. Yeah. And so Yeah, this is this is definitely a speaker to watch, isn't it? It really is. To see I what think so. see what comes of this. Okay, so I think my <laughs> my next news <laughs> item 
is possibly a little bit more pedestrian, right? Now, it comes from Rotel. And because, Trajan, last time you gave us such a, a, a wonderful sort of summary of acoustic energy's history, I thought I would just do a little bit of digging into Rotel's history because I visited their factory about 10 years ago in, in China. I'll get to this in a moment. And they gave us the history then, but obviously I've forgotten it. But when I reread it just now, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. So Rotel, I think, was founded in, in the 60s, but it started as a, a Japanese distribution company for an American television brand. Okay. And because oh, – there, there goes your squeaking, Mr. John. <laughs> because Rotel had to modify the TVs coming in to a different voltage because I think that there's a 10-volt discrepancy between the USA and Japan. They obviously were in the electronics business from the get-go. And then they moved into sort of OEM manufacturing. And then they started their own range of audio electronics under the Rotel brand. And I think if I've got this right, some of the development was done in the UK. Some of it was done in Japan. And because I think because of that UK facility, they got to know or somehow formed an alliance with Bowers and Wilkins in the back in the 80s, right? And I think they ran parallel with global distribution with Bowers. So Bowers would distribute all Rotel electronics in whichever territory they were, you know, operating. And then in the mid 2000s, I think that collaboration became even closer when I don't know, I've got no idea who suggested it because I think electronics were made in, were made in Japan until that point. But Bowers said, look, why don't we just get our own factory in Zhuhai in China, which is the one I've been to. And we'll make everything there. Now, you would think that that might cause a dip in quality, but it's certainly not anything I've noticed. And in fact, I've got a Japanese Rotel integrated here, an affordable one, the same one that I owned in about 92. And hmm. I've also got, or no, sorry, I did have, I actually gave it away to a patron. Um, the, ah, uh, I've got to get this right, the is it called the A11 Tribute Amplifier? And that's obviously made in Zhuhai. And I thought the A11 Tribute sounded better. And the key, I think, to Rotel's success is they wind their own transformers. This is something that should never be ignored with their gear. They're not buying them in from anybody else. They wind them in-house. There's a, a bunch of photos that I took back in 20, was it 2014, 15? I went 14, I think, um, of people winding transformers. So just because it's China doesn't mean it's shit. And this factory was, I, I mean, I know they're putting on a show for us when we go. I went with a bunch of Australian uh, dealers because the Australian distributor organized that, that tour. But it was absolutely fascinating. It was, it was really cool. And we saw the, the Bowers part of the factory as well. They were making some of the more affordable speakers, I think, they were doing there. Um, anyway, so sort of bring it up to date, Rotel have been, I would say, quite slow in producing amplifiers that have a streaming board inside so they can do music streaming but then i think it was the end of 2022 so only yeah at the end of last year they released the s14 which is a streaming amplifier i think it's yeah it sells i'm looking at my notes here sells for 2500 us dollars but that's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about something even newer, something something called the RAS 5000, the RAS 5000. Now, this is one of these big, chunky Rotels. It's not like the slimline one, the, the S14 is. This is one of the big, taller ones. It's got a nice screen on the front, so obviously shows you cover art metadata because this one also does streaming. 
we get so the basics of it is all class AB because of the toroidals that they wind. Although I think they did have a dalliance with class D for a while, but they they walked that back and went back to class AB. Um, so yeah, this is class AB, 140 watts per channel into eight ohms, 220 into four. Right, so it's pretty powerful, I guess, on the class AB side of things. Probably why it's so big, and there's probably a honking great, you know, toroidal right in the middle of that amplifier. I would think there's an ESS DAC inside, which I think it's it's interesting actually reading press releases now where many manufacturers are refusing to say which DAC chip, and I think I think they do this because they don't want their product product to be prejudged by the terminally online who never leave their house, never listen to anything and will judge everything from the spec sheet, right? So if you say you've got an ESS Labs DAC, we don't say which one, I think that's that's smart business because then you're not inviting people to go, oh, it's only got a 9023 or a 9034, whatever the numbers are, right? I mean, yes, they can tell you. So if there's the, the flagship, whatever ESS DAC chip, can give you a hint as to what it might sound like but somebody could take that chip implement it poorly and make it sound terrible right or somebody could take one of the lesser chips and impl implement it beautifully and make it sound wonderful so anyway this is yeah so John, well, I think the, yeah the, the, the other thing is remember when the akm factory in japan burned down and I suddenly do. there was a shortage of that chip yeah a lot of manufacturers that were embracing the akm chips had to switch to ess yep and I think that also made them aware, and plus then we had COVID and we had apart shortages anyways, mm -hmm. that if you advertise your product as using a particular integrated chip, mm. and that chip suddenly is not available, and you have to redesign the product, and you only have to redesign it not because it was bad or because you want to make it better, it's mm. just you've, you've lost access to a part. If you've never advertised a part to begin with, you have... You know, you can quietly make the necessary change. Yes. And that's it. If you talk about the part and suddenly you no longer use it, you now must tell the client that he's no longer getting the ESS 9038 mm. and it's an AKM chip in there or whatever. I think that's another reason why we are seeing sort of less disclosure on, on chips. Possibly. I mean, some manufacturers use chip disclosure as as for bragging rights, basically, especially right. if they're using a 9038 Pro. But there are so many different minor SKUs that ESS offer, and some of them are mobile-centric, so they need lower power, and they're not as good sound-wise, I don't think, from what I gather, as the, the sort of the desktop version, right? So you could see 9038 and think, oh, that's really good, but is it the Pro or is it the mobile version? So you really have to dig pretty hard. And, you know, coming back to what you just said about disclosure and then having to update that happened to rme with their adi uh, dac2 fs whatever it's called because i bought one of those a few years ago it uses an akm chip i didn't buy it because of the akm i just bought it because people were raving about it but they've had to switch to ess as has have many manufacturers although one manufacturer who i won't name i've heard that they switch from akm to ess and aren't going back even though AKM are back in business because apparently the pricing being offered to them by AKM is what this manufacturer calls a joke. So I think in some ways it's better not to have a certain brand in your product because then you will be put side by side by the Termly online to compare in a theoretical way, even though that's completely erroneous, people still do it because people want to shop from the comfort of 
their internet station, right? They, I mean, yeah, that bugs me actually, as you can tell, it kind of annoys me that people do that because there's no substitute for listening. And yet people, I think through wishful thinking, want it to be, and it isn't. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this product was not just because it's a new streaming amplifier from Rotel, but it's a vehicle to make this point that DAC chips aren't everything. And we have to consider the analog output stage that follows the DAC, the power supply, the feeds, the DAC, all of these things I've <laughs> I don't know, I've become a bit of a broken record about, but I'll still talk about them in every opportunity because I think the message, you know, needs to be sort of pushed out there on a regular basis. But uh, this ESS DAC in this Rotel amplifier, it does do MQA. I don't know why. Well, who knows what's going to happen with MQA these days? I've got no idea. Until we know, it's not really something... I think DAC manufacturers could really brag about because at this stage in the game, it's only really on Tidal and Tidal are phasing it out. So until a new streaming player enters the market, MQA is the, uh, yeah, until that point, MQA is a has-been, right? Until that changes. It might change, I don't know. But anyway, to get to the, to the, the, the real meat of this Rotel story, it has a streaming board inside which does Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect, AirPlay 2, Rune Ready, and Google, Google, Google Chromecast, which <clears throat> Chromecast wasn't very popular a few years ago, and I think it's being rolled out into more products. And I think the reason is, is Stream Unlimited, who are the OEM manufacturer of many boards that go into many different products. So they're an Austrian company who make a streaming board that they sell to other hi-fi companies, say, hey, we, we can give you a turnkey solution for your amplifier your DAC or whatever you put it in you have to tweak the software we could probably help you with that for a fee and the reason i think this is a stream unlimited board is because of the inclusion of chromecast because i know i'm not going to mention the speaker a certain speaker manufacturer put a stream unlimited board into their speaker a couple of years ago and it has the exact same streaming feature set and it's not like a blue sound because blue sound doesn't have chromecast mm -hmm. so I mean, it's good. It's good for the customer because it's pretty much that's pretty much everything. If you've got Spotify, Tidal Connect, AirPlay, Rune Ready, and Chromecast, I think you've got everything apart from Plex or Plex Amp. Now, I'll just mention Plex Amp now very briefly, in that that's a way of streaming from a Plex server the music content using an app on your phone and sending it to another, basically another version of that app elsewhere on your network. Now, at the moment, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but possibly I'll become a broken record about this region as well. Um, <laughs> at the moment, you can only really stream to PlexAmp running on a Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. But Lumen have just put it in their streamer. I think we have talked about this before. And there's another manufacturer who is using a board from Lumen, possibly, maybe. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that or not, but I think I am. And so that might get PlexAmp next year. So I think we're going to see the ascendancy, certainly in my world anyway, we're going to see the ascendancy of, of PlexAmp as being another prong on the sort of streaming fork, right? So, you know, Spotify Connect, Tidal Connect, AirPlay, Chromecast, Rune, and then the sixth one will be PlexAmp. So there's another reason to mention this, even though it does everything you could possibly want it to. But I think PlexAmp is a essentially a free alternative that's not as powerful as Rune, doesn't look quite as good, but it's still pretty damn good. 
I guess squeeze light would be another one. Why don't you mention squeeze light, John? I love squeeze light, but it's just another one that probably wouldn't really factor into most products like a Rotel because a Rotel amplifier is pitched at high street dealer type sales, right? Mm-hmm. It goes next to your Cambridge, next to your Marantz. Uh, you know, the tradition, I mean, I, I grew up on Cambridge, Rotel and Marantz seeing those in my local hi-fi stores in the nineties, which is why I owned a Rotel in the nineties. Cause it was the sleek design. I liked the sound of it. It got a rave review in what hi-fi I thought, yeah, I'll just get that. It was a hundred and something quid. And I've, I've still got one. It still sounds great, you know? So anyway, so, but now obviously Rotel are moving with the times. They're doing streaming at last. And lastly, and this is again, another broken record topic for me, HDMI arc is in this amplifier. You know how last time mm-hmm. I was saying it really needs to be in amplifiers that still to sort of the more mom and dad type consumer, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of dude or dudette who walks into a hi-fi store going, oh, I wonder what, you know, I've got some money. I can improve the sound of my TV, right? Can't do it unless you've got HDMI arc. Well, you can, you have to use Toslink. That's not as compelling as HDMI arc, I don't think, for the reasons we discussed last time. I won't go into that here. So anyway, this Raz 5000, interestingly, sells for only 500 bucks more than the S14. And it's more powerful, it's bigger, it's got better connectivity, it's got the display on the front. I mean, I just think this looks like a, a good alternative to say the Cambridge Evo 150 or the name Unity Atom, even though those are probably more lifestyle sort of focused products in that they've been beautifully designed to look attractive in a home. Whereas the Rotel looks like a Rotel really, you know, like big, well, I look, I'm looking at the silver version, big, big shiny faceplate, but obviously you can get black as well. There's a headphone socket on the front, big volume control. So I, th- I mean, I, I'm all about Rotel. I think they, they make great stuff. So hats off to them to finally kind of catching up with the rest of the world. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean that in a patronizing way. <clears throat> Any questions, Shadran, before we move on? No, just you said it was $500 more than, but what does it end up being for this piece you were just talking about? What's oh, the yes. final retail yeah. price? The final retail price is $3,000 US dollars. So the S14, okay. the slimline one that came out at the end of last year, 2,500, this one's three grand. I think this is, looks like the much bigger deal. And I don't think the S14, if I'm correct, I don't think it had HDMI arc on it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. No, it doesn't have HDMI arc on it. So yeah, I think the, uh, the RAS 5000 is the much better deal. And again, we're talking black and silver available. Black and sil- silver. Yeah. As always mm-hmm. with the uh, Rotel gear. So yeah. That's my that's my first news item of the day, Sajan. Now we're going to go to Shakespeare and Hamlet <laughs> and Denmark. Okay. <laughs> so you so you know that if you go from Berlin to Hamburg and then you keep traveling north. You hit Flensburg and then you cross the border and you're in Denmark. And if mm-hmm. you keep going up, it's called the Northern Jutland Peninsula. Mm-hmm. In Jut, I always think as you know, sticking out. Just so, out, yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. on the Northern Jutland Peninsula of Denmark, we have a company called Dantax Radio SA. Mm-hmm. And Dantax today owns the brands Rido and Scansonic. Now, they also used to own a brand called Gamut Audio. And Gamut Audio was a speaker company mm-hmm. whose uh, designer is called Benno Baumelgard. 
And um, Rido and Scansonic were originally founded by Lars Christensen and Michael Burrison. Mm-hmm. And when the financial crisis hit, their business took a hit, and Dantax Radio sort of rescued or absorbed the brands Rido and Scansonic, and then eventually decided to divest themselves of Gamut because mm-hmm. they couldn't have three different loudspeaker brands mm-hmm. under one roof, design them all, market them, sell them. So Gamut went the way of the dodo, but mm-hmm. the designer Benobaun Melgard reappeared with Griffin Audio Designs, where he designed the EOS mm-hmm. two-way floor stander, and currently he's working on his own company. He's going to come up with something very, very high-end, with his own drivers, again, loudspeakers. But uh, that is still in the development phase. So we've mentioned now Michael Burrison as the original designer of Rido. Michael Burrison, with his business partner, founded another company. Mm -hmm. And the speaker part is called Burrison Audio. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's important to mention that is because to this day, Rido loudspeakers and Burrison loudspeakers share a lot of design DNA. In mm-hmm. fact, they also look surprisingly similar. Now, when Michael Burrison left Rido, Benno Baumelgard of Gamut was still in the company, and he became the new designer of Rido and Scansonic. And so mm-hmm. he revoiced the original Burrison-designed Rido's, which sort of changed their sonic signature. Today, Rido and Scansonic no longer have a celebrity designer. Now they hire contract engineers whenever they have a new project. And the way I was told is Denmark has so many first-rate engineers, there's no need for us to keep somebody permanently (laughs) on staff. We hire somebody when we need them, and we hire somebody Mm -hmm. specific to the project that we're after. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Rido are very, very expensive loudspeakers, and Scansonic has always been sort of the trickle-down receiver of Rido speakers. Mm. And at the show in Munich this year, Scansonic announced a new range, and it's called the Q range. And the Q range supposedly has the most Rido DNA ever. And it is the first time that Scansonic has an 8-inch driver. And it's also the first time, I believe, that Scansonic and possibly even Rido have three-way speakers. Hmm. Because Michael Burson's um, preference mm. has always been for two and a half way speakers when he needed more cone surface than a two way speaker can provide. And Rido kept the face with the two and a half way Credo up until the Q range. So in the Q range, we have three models. They're called the Q3, the Q8, and the Q10. Mm-hmm. And the Q3 is using. Two five and a quarter inch carbon fiber midwoofers in a two and a half way design, mm-hmm. still classic Scansonic. But then the Q8 becomes the three way. Now it has one five and a quarter inch midwoofer, and then it has an eight inch carbon fiber woofer in a three way configuration. And the top line Q10 doubles up on the woofers. Now we have two eight inch woofers. The tweeter remains the famous Michael Burson designed and then evolved planar magnetic. Unfortunately, 
Both Scansonic and Burson still refer to it as a ribbon, and it's not. Mm -hmm. It's a planar magnetic, just like in an Odyssey headphone. Mm -hmm. And the difference is that a planar magnetic has a voice call attached to the membrane, mm -hmm. whereas in a ribbon, the entire membrane itself, aluminum, mm -hmm. is conductive. It doesn't need a right. voice call etched on it. And the ribbon has its, its magnet top and bottom, mm -hmm. and there's nothing sort of fronting or backing the, the membrane, whereas on a planar magnetic, you have um, magnets at least on one side. If it's a push-pull design, then you have magnets on both sides, mm -hmm. like you would see in a Hyperman Susvara headphone, and you sort of see these window shutter magnets sort of covering half of the membrane of mm. the planar magnetic driver. So that's the tweeter that's inside all of the Q range models. Mm -hmm. Now, let me get this right. Pricing starts at 7,000 a pair, mm -hmm. goes all the way up to 15,000 for the top model. Mm. The standard finish is always a piano gloss black lacquer. Mm -hmm. And then for 2,000 euros more, you can get a walnut veneer. Okay. So you're starting at seven in black for the smallest one, add two, and now you come out at 9K for the smallest one in veneer until you get to 15,000 for the veneer for the top one. Okay. All of the speaker cabinets are very modern looking in that they have the narrowest possible front baffle, just wide enough for the drivers. And then mm -hmm. they really, really slim to the rear where they are only about two at the very most three fingers widths wide, okay. which is why the, the speaker terminals actually have to mount top and bottom. Right. They, they can't mount side by side because there's not enough room. Mm -hmm. And not only does the cabinet slim to the rear, then the rear, the spine actually has a curvature built in. Mm. And the, the cheeks are also curved. They're narrowing to the side. Mm. And then the whole speaker also slightly leans back. So it's a very attractive design that, again, mirrors what Rido have done for their expensive speakers. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, is pretty much all I've got except for that if we go to the Q10 mm. with its dual 8-inch woofers, that, if you add it up together, because, again, we are talking about parallel drivers, we have an 11.3-inch woofer. Mm -hmm. Now, Person flagship speaker today sells for half a million. Euros. <laughs> really? Oh my goodness! Half a million. Okay. It's called the M6, and it needs six four and a quarter inch drivers mm. to come up with the equivalent of an eleven inch woofer. So, for all intents and purposes, the most expensive fifteen thousand euro Scansonic Q10 has the same cone surface as a half a million dollar Burson speaker. Yeah. Now, obviously, the Burson speaker divides that cone surface over multiple motors, so you have less excursion, you're applying mm. more flux and all of that. But in terms of bandwidth, in terms of like how low will this thing play, we would probably expect equivalency. Okay. I mean, when I hear those kinds of price numbers i always my, my my first thought is not oh my god that's a ripoff because that's just childish thinking really it's okay what kind of room would i need to do that justice 
And therefore, what kind of house would I need to have the room to do the speaker's justice, right? So this is for somebody who's got, I would assume, at least a very, not a very large listening room, but something that's sizable and yeah. possibly treated because you wouldn't, get, you're not going to put it into, into an echo box because then you're no. just throwing money away. Literally, you're, right. you're lighting it on fire, right? So I think my personal take on this is the more you spend on speakers, the more you have to factor in the room in order to do, to, to, to do justice to those things. Quite. I'm not saying that room treatments don't have any effect on affordable speakers. Absolutely, they do. But it's, it's kind of like, well, you're spending, I mean, my next news item is below three, well, below 500 bucks. So basically, if I had a pair of $500 stand mounts, I'm not going to worry about treating the room because it's just, it's why would I spend 10 grand on a room treatment for a $500 speaker? But if I've got a half a million dollar speaker and somebody said to me, John, you'd spend 50 grand on your room, so 10%, that makes sense, right? Even though yeah. 50 grand in here, I mean, I, if I had spent 50 grand on room treatment in here, I would want it to be invisible, right? So it would look <laughs> good luck. But it would just be a room within a room, right? You'd build right. the room within the room and make it invisible and yeah. whatever. But it's just, this is where my mind goes when I hear about very expensive speakers and you know, because I, I, what I see in my YouTube comments is people, and I was discussing this with Lavonia the, the other day on the phone. A lot of people out there seem to have an inability to conceive of people different from them and their circumstances. At least that's the way it comes across in the comments, right? Like, who buys this stuff? What are, you know, only only fools spend their money on this kind of thing. No, there are plenty of people out there who've got shit tons of money who don't necessarily flaunt it some people do but not all of them i mean i can think of areas of sydney where there's just like so many multi-million dollar houses that would easily accommodate speakers like these like big swathes of the city not just like little pockets like big areas and i guess out near grunewald here would be the same right so i, I guess what i'm saying is they walk among us right rich people that you know don't flaunt yeah. it and the cars drive amongst us. I mean, there's Ferraris going down the road, and there is, you know, uh, Humvees, and there is mm -hmm. very expensive cars. Usually people don't get quite as annoyed by the existence of expensive cars. They don't necessarily say, what a fool, that somebody just, you know, has a Porsche 911, mm. and he's, he's living out here in Ireland where everything is potholes, and there's <laughs> sheep running around the street, and you can't do 180 kilometers an hour. Right. You can't even do 120. So what what use is the Porsche? But people do appreciate that it's a toy, and some people that have the money enjoy the toy. Well, mm. there is some sort of Formula One type technology in these very, very expensive bursts and speakers, and okay. there's a lot of silver in there. Mm. I mean, there is kilograms worth of pure silver in them. There is a reason for the material cost, and of course, it's, an ex it's a big company with more than 50 employees. They all have to get paid. The dealers want to make their profit. I mean, all of that keeps piling on. And but the R&D. Yeah, but if you part the curtain, there is a lot of like raw material cost and mm -hmm. procedures that go into this half-million-dollar speaker, mm -hmm. including, for example, cryogenic treatment. Right. And, and actually buying their own cryogenic vats in the factory to do all of this in-house. And okay. 3D printing, you know, a basket from uh, zirconium 
Okay. And I don't know how many days it takes to actually print this basket, you know, right. one little sort of drop at a time. Hmm. And, you know, you could argue whether that's sensible and you could wonder how much better is that than a standard printed or, you know, stamped aluminum basket. But the fact is it's in there and some hmm. people appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's, um, let me play my yin to your yang, Sujan, with a, yes. a super affordable product. And now this comes from another Japanese company who not only make hi-fi, they make pianos and motorbikes, because of course they do. Yamaha, is, it must be. <clears throat> it's Yamaha, of course it's Yamaha. Now, I only, I guess I've, I, I wrote about this on my website after our last discussion about Neumann and their active stand mounts, right? Mm -hmm. And in that time, I have been to visit Neumann. They got in touch and said, do you want to come around and have a look? And they gave me the full tour. It was very, very generous of them to you know, to take the time out. And there's a lot going on there. They've got an, an entire um, anechoic chamber. My first time in there, that was, that was pretty wild, actually. I, that was great. But it kind of made me realize that I need to cover more of this sort of powered active speaker territory on the website if, if nowhere else or certainly here as well when we're covering news items mm -hmm. and this one popped up just in my facebook feed whereas generally i learn a lot about new products coming to market just through facebook because i'm not on yamaha's press list so i had to dig into this now i'll get to why i'm talking about this particular speaker in a moment but well there's two of them actually there's there's two pairs of speakers hs3 hs4 now i think the DNA for these speakers is the NS10. So the NS10 is the passive speaker that you see in the background of many sort of talking head studio interviews. It's like a black box, white mid-bass driver, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it's not the best sounding speaker from by all accounts. I've never really heard a pair. No, I did once. Yeah, it was okay. But I think the idea is that if you can make it sound good on that, you can you know, you can be pretty confident it'll sound good on other things as well. So it's another benchmark. So now they've got this thing called the, well, these things called the HS3 and the HS4. And these again are like pint-sized stand mounts, but these are, they're powered loudspeakers. And that's why I want to talk about these because I want to explain the way I understand it, Sujan, the difference between powered and active, because the Neumann we spoke about last week well, last time were active loudspeakers. So an active loudspeaker, well, no, actually, let me wind it back. Let's talk about a normal hi-fi system, right? Let's say you've got a pair of NS10s, right? You're going to need an outboard amplifier for that. So your amplifier is connected to your speakers with, with speaker cable. And the signal comes out of the amp and goes into the speaker, and it meets the crossover on the other side of the speaker terminals on the back of the speaker. And mm -hmm. then that's what splits the sound between the two drivers, right? Correct. And obviously the, the, the crossover smooths the frequency response and s hopefully sorts out any phase issues if it can. But it's it's made from passive components. So capacitors, inductors, resistors, right? And that's how most audiophiles tend to see hi-fi. It's like, I've got my passive speakers and my outboard amplifier, and that's me, and that's all I need to know. Whereas active speakers don't work that way. They basically move the amplification onto the other side of the crossover. Mm -hmm. So you have a crossover. Now it can be done with active components, but generally nowadays it's, for most things that we talk about, it's done in DSP. 
So the crossover splits the signal between the two drivers inside the speaker, and then it goes to a DAC for each driver, and then an amp for each driver, and then the drivers move, right? So I mention all of this as a very convoluted way to explain that basically with an active system, the amplification comes after the crossover. And in a passive system, the amplification comes before the crossover. Do you want to interject here, Sujan, with any clarifications or errors I've made? Because I might have done. It's possible. No, but uh, we should say why there is an advantage to the active gonna, way. I wasn't going to go there, but okay. We can. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Well, go sorry, ahead. It's, it's actually very basic. It's like mm -hmm. when you take these passive components that can absorb energy and release it later, mm. and they can injure, uh, incur oscillations, they can absorb, hold, and then release energy time delayed. Mm -hmm. If you take that out and you direct connect the amplifier directly to the voice coil of the driver, mm -hmm. you have more control. And the amplifier only has to operate in and the bandwidth the, of that, that driver, right? Correct, which is why very often in active speakers, you see that they list or specify a class AB amp for the tweeter. Yes. And nearly always a class D amp for the woofer. Yes. Because the woofer now doesn't have to reproduce high frequencies. And in that line of thinking, it's class D wouldn't be as advantageous in the treble, mm -hmm. but class AB may sound better. But in yep. the bass, hands down, class D is superior. So that's how you can split the two of them. Right, right. So back with the Yamaha. So basically, each one of these is a two-way. So in the HS3, we've got a, a three-quarter inch fabric tweeter and a three-and-a-half-inch mid-bass driver. It's tiny, right? And the HS4 has a one-inch tweeter and a four-and-a-half-inch mid-bass driver. But these are only designed for desktops, small rooms, that kind of thing. Now, I've got to look at the amplification here. And if I was looking for an active speaker, I, I would be looking, as you've just said, what kind, is, what kind of amp is on the tweeter? What kind of amp is on the mid-bass driver? But we don't get that information. Why? Well, because this is not an active speaker. Basically, what Yamaha have done is they've taken the sort of traditional audiophile outboard amplifier and just put it in one of the speaker boxes. Correct. And then that is fed into a, an internal crossover, passive crossover, inside one of the speaker boxes. And that drives the two drivers in there. And then there's a normal speaker wire interlink to the other speaker, which that same amplifier, the, the right-hand channel or the left-hand channel, depends on which way they've got them oriented, will then power the, the crossover inside that speaker as if it were a passive speaker, because essentially it is a passive speaker just with an amplifier inside the box. Correct. So I mentioned this because it's very easy to look at like a powered speaker like this Yamaha and think, well, that's an active. That's just a cheaper version of the Neumann that John spoke about last time. And that's absolutely not the case. We get none of the advantages of active speakers because they're not. They're just basically passive speakers with the amp moved inside one of the speaker boxes, which is why they sell for, let me look this up. The HS3 is 250 euros a pair. The HS4, slightly bigger one, 285 euros a pair. Now, I'm not doing it to shit on these. I think for the right customer, you know, like if I was starting out and didn't have any money, this would be a good choice just to start me out, especially if I was, you know, wanting to you know, do music production at home. I mean, I don't know whether they're voiced in that kind of, I say voiced. Actually, I was talking to an engineer who we'll talk about in a bit the other day. 
and he's got a, a bunch of um active speakers at home and i was saying to him okay so why do audiophiles in your mind object so much to active speakers is it because they sound in inverted commas too neutral he's like yeah so i said well does it therefore follow that basically audiophiles like color they want a color a certain color to their sound he's like yeah i think so but they won't this is my words but they won't admit it will they 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 want to say oh my speaker is extremely neutral and yet when they hear an active speaker like a studio type speaker they go oh no that's too neutral so like, which one is it? Like if you say you, you've got a straight wire with gain at home and then you go here in Neumann and go, oh no, that's way too revealing for my tastes, too neutral, then, well, then what do you have at home? Like it's got to be colored by definition. So I don't know where these Yamaha fall on that scale. The amplifier module is a class D. Does it say in my notes how many? Oh, I think it might have done, but I, I can't find it right now. Anyway, there's a class D amp that powers this. I mean, it'll be enough, I think, to produce a reasonably good SPL. But it's, it's a starter speaker, right? It's for something that if you've got a kid going to college, you buy them a pair of these because you, if you're a good parent, you won't buy them a separate amp and separate speakers because that's a pain. These two will come in a box. You just, you, you know, yoink that around. And the other thing I'll say about these is that despite there being no, no DAC in them or anything like that, these would make a much better TV speaker than any soundbar. For 250 bucks, you get a you know, DAC with a Toslink connection to your TV. Have these speakers on the, on the ends of your sideboard underneath the telly. will sound way better than a soundbar. You won't get as much bass, but it will just sound clearer and more, I guess, yeah, just more satisfying, I think. I, I really have course. it. I, sorry, go on. I mean, plus, of course, since there are individual speakers, you can space them where you want. And you get and the, the sound bar. Sound bar is fixed by definition, so yes. your sound stage can possibly not be wider than. I mean, even if that thing is a meter wide. Whereas, if you put the speakers two meters of, apart, you will mm. have a two meter wide sound stage. Yeah. My question to you is: since I have not seen these Yamaha, what do they look like? Are they like injection molded plastic cabinets or? Regular um, MDF cabinets with like a fake uh, wood veneer, like a plastic wood veneer, or I what does it look like? I, it's kind of hard to tell. I did. Oh, no, it is MDF. Yes, MDF cabinets, and they're covered in some kind of um, vinyl. I guess it's like a black vinyl mm -hmm. or a white vinyl. You have the choice mm -hmm. of the okay, two. Gotcha. I mean, a vinyl is probably the, the standard. Yeah, at that price. price. Yeah. yeah. And there's a volume control on the front of the speaker. So, yeah, I just think this is a a great starter kit, a great soundbar replacement. I, I really have it in for soundbars because, as you say, this they, they can only go as wide as they are long. And speakers are wider. Even if they're cheaper, they're going to be better than a soundbar. I know some soundbar manufacturers try and trick us with marketing by saying, well, we can fire a driver this way and it'll hit the sidewall and it'll bounce back. And like, what if you've got no sidewall? Like, what if it opens out into a dining area? Right? It's just... I won't say it's willfully deceptive, but it's a little bit loose, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Whereas with these, you look at two speakers, you kind of know what you're going to get, I think, really. So, yeah. So hopefully people will understand, <laughs> even though I explained it again in a convoluted way, the difference between a powered speaker and an active loudspeaker. I will add this. You can get an active speaker where the amps sit outside of the speaker cabinet. So you, you have a bit like the Emerald Physics, right? 
the crossover is outside. The amps outside as well, right? But the amps are still on the driver side of the crossover. So you go crossover, right. amplifiers, drivers, right? And it makes it an active crossover. Yes, and it has to, and that needs power. That needs to be right juiced by something. So normally we see it inside the speaker, right? With your your kefs and Genelec. Somebody said to me, John didn't mention Genelec last week, and it was like he was trying hard not to. And I'm like, no, I've actually got a pair of Genelec that I never use. They're sitting upstairs. In fact, I've got a little squat pair in my office in Portugal as well. I love Genelec speakers. They're great, but they're also actives. But actives are generally the preserve of the, the, the pro world, although they are slowly bleeding into the hi-fi world. But I don't think the hi-fi world is entirely ready for it. Some customers are, but not everyone. And I sort of understand why, but anyway. We should move on, Srijan, because we're already we're already over time. And, All right, this, and we know this, we come to your spicy section, right? <laughs> this will be quick. But I know you love the voodoo that I do. It's it's Trajan's voodoo section, right? Yes. <laughs> now, John. So, have you ever given any thought to where the um, the goods end up that you flush down the toilet every day? Oh my goodness! Or the trash that the, the, the trash that the, the garbage truck picks up like once or twice every week? No, once it's disappeared from my house. I mean, I, obviously, I have a bin room downstairs where I have to take my garbage and put it in a big, right. big wheelie bin that gets wheeled out by the. Uh, the garbage minute twice a week, but yeah. I'd like to use that as an example for certain things that once they're out of sight, out of mind, mm -hmm, we don't pay any attention to yep. them. Now, I had reason to wonder where the doo-doo goes when, <laughs> my, when my backyard started smelling. And I realized that there's a septic tank. Okay. And then I asked my landlord, and he, he confirmed that the prior tenants that had lived there here more than five years mm. never, ever emptied out the septic tank. Whoa. So, you know, I go online, and I find a specialized truck that comes by, and mm. lo and behold, he lifts the lid, and there are all the goods, and he has a hose <laughs> about this big, and he pumps, out, <laughs> yes. he pumps out this entire septic tank, which is like seven years' worth of crap, right? Literally. So now, when, when he leaves, <laughs> I ask him, I said, all that stuff that is now in your truck, mm. where does that go? And he says, well, I drive it to Limerick, which is the closest really big city here. Mm. And we have a depot. And he said, there is this enormous vat sitting in the parking lot. And what? that's, and I empty out my truck into those vats. I said, okay, where do those vats go? He says, I have no idea. Okay, wow. so now let's now let's rewind okay, okay. and let's go let's go to the trash. Mm -hmm. And when I was still living in Taos, New Mexico, every once in a while I had to go to the local landfill mm -hmm. to get rid of some garbage that the, that the garbage collectors wouldn't pick up. Mm -hmm. And you see this festering area with like birds dive bombing. Mm -hmm. It's smelly. It's just it's terrible. Mm. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is because audio ground is very similar in that we don't see it. Mm. We hear manufacturers talking about shunting noise to ground, and we feel, yeah, that's fine. That's like a landfill. It's like we flush the toilet and it's gone. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the other day, I 
reviewed something that purports to minimize noise on the ground plane. Mm -hmm. The company that sent me this is from Taiwan, and they are called Telos Audio. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about what I heard, because I want our audience to wonder, or to maybe even in the comment section, speculate what they think the difference might be. Mm -hmm. And I have already given you a link to a video that you will run in the background while we're talking about this. Well, where... I mean, we can, we, can, we can show it now, and then we can, we can come back after we've shown it. Micro 那他接地之後,他的那個雜訊就會往Micro So we've seen the video, Sushan. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a, a smartphone video, essentially, right? Of yeah. two dudes but chatting. Basically, basically what we saw, we saw a generic uh, network switch. Mm -hmm. with like 608 RJ45 plugs. <clears throat> and we saw two hands measuring the voltage differential on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it showed 14 volts. Mm -hmm. And then we see them plug in this device that I reviewed. So they use one of the network switches plugs, mm -hmm. the RG45 plug. They plug their device in there. And the moment it plugs in, we, we see on the meter that the voltage differential drops down to 0 0.3 volts. Mm -hmm. That's like more than a magnitude of reduction in in voltage differential on the ground plane. Well, I would call that obliteration almost, pretty much. Like it's almost. Well, on my behalf, you called Jürgen Reis of uh, MBL in Berlin. I did. Who was a famous engineer who was very open to explaining things to us dumb reviewers. He is brilliant at it. Yes, yes. I always find. And him when I have we a... asked yeah. him whether this voltage. Whether that is the noise itself, or is it a condition which allows for noise to happen? And mm -hmm. he says, no, no, that is the noise itself. Mm. He said, that measurement alone does not tell us yet at what frequency the noise occurs and at what impedance. Mm. And he said that the frequency and the impedance of this voltage will determine where the noise will travel and what kind of damage it will do when it gets there. Yes. He said that we cannot tell from this measurement, but what we can tell is that the noise has been reduced significantly, and because of that, these other two factors have been weakened a lot. Mm. Right, yes. So this is not BS, this is completely factual, mm. but since most of us never think about the ground, the only time we think about ground, if we have a ground noise loop, we have hum happens very often with an active subwoofer. Suddenly, our system hums. And then mm. very often, the solution is that if we have a three-prong plug, 
we float it. So now we only have two, hot and ground, mm. and we float the ground, and suddenly the noise is gone. And now we think, no more ground noise, I'm, I'm, I'm home free. But the fact is that we have voltage differentials on the ground plane all the time. Mm. And if there is a device, and it's not an if, there is a device that can objectively lower that, what do we think this will do for our sound? And I'd be very curious to see the comment section of our audience to suggest what the sonic benefits might be, or does everybody think no difference whatsoever? It doesn't matter. 